What's the life of a renunciant in this age? From the basic lifestyle, such as eating and sleeping habits, to the most rigorous of sadness, who is appropriate to live that life? So, the lifestyle of a, of a renunciant, or sannyasi, in this, this age, is very much like it always was. Yes, there's more now that attracts us outside. So there's more specific things to renounce, you could say. But that doesn't actually, I don't think, I mean, I don't have memories of past lives living at times where, you know, we didn't have all of this. But my instinct is, I don't actually think that it makes that much of a difference. The difficulty in renunciation is not over the individual thing. It's not, oh my God, pizza. Just can't, won't be able to live without pizza. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think it's that. I've never heard of anybody really drawn to take a path of renunciation and say, but you know, that, that pizza thing, I just, there's no way, or you know, that, that shopping mall thing, I just, that's the thing keeping me from it. I, I don't think so. I've never, I've never heard that. That certainly was not my, my experience. That which we renounce is a, a renunciation of that which keeps us stuck. And that's ultimately what it's, what it's about. It's not about a renunciation just of this food or that type of shopping. It's a renunciation of that which keeps us stuck from being able to live fully immersed in God. And so, for example, we take vows of celibacy, but I think renouncing sex today is probably very similar to renouncing sex 100 years ago or 200 years ago. I mean, there may be more options available to people today than there were 500 years ago. But I don't think that the renunciation of it is different whether you have 500 different options to choose from or whether you have one option to choose from. The renunciation is a renunciation of ownership and attachment. And again, I don't think it really matters. I've never heard of someone say, well, I've only got this many things. And so, okay, I can renounce. But if I've got this many things, well, then I couldn't renounce. Whatever we have, we're very attached to them. You see it even with people who have very little. It doesn't matter what they have. They're very attached. Whether it's a possession, whether it's power. One of the things I always, I always laugh at around here coming in from the West is the, the way that people hold so tenaciously to whatever, whatever power they have, whatever desk they might be the head of, if that's all they've seen, 
this particular desk or this particular, you know, 200 meter stretch of world. Well, then to be the one in charge of that 200 meter stretch of the world, that's everything for people who haven't actually seen the world. When you've actually seen the world, you realize, oh, wait, I'm, I'm king of kind of nowhere. <laughs> but when you haven't seen it, there's that, that incredible tenacity with which people hold on. So I don't think that letting go of attachment changes today because there's so much compared to 50 or 100 or 500 years ago. Can't imagine someone saying, well, all I've got is, you know, a cave and some tools and, you know, a wife or a husband and a couple of kids and this little plot of land. Therefore, no problem, I'll renounce. Or I've only got 10 sheep, okay, I'll renounce. Whereas today we say, okay, so I've got this big house, I can't renounce. I don't think so. I think that it's much more of an internal experience of attachment than actually a matter of what we have. And so in that way, I don't think that renunciation today actually looks that much different on the inside than it probably did 50 or 100 or 500 years ago. 5,000 years ago. You know, we get all of these, these stories from the scriptures of renunciants getting tempted. We actually just, was it yesterday or the day before that we celebrated Nadaji's Jayanti? A few days ago. So just, just a couple days ago, we celebrated the, the Jayanti of the great sage, Nadaji. And there's a beautiful story of his life. He was a great sage, great renunciant. One day, this king says to him, I need you to read my daughter's palm. I need you to tell us. The kings, the, the monarchs, always really used to turn to the spiritual people, the sages, the saints, for, for wisdom and guidance. And so it was not unusual at all for a king to call upon a sage for even guidance about his house and his daughter. So he calls Nadiji and says, please, could you look at my daughter's palm? Nadiji takes the princess's palm and looks at it and falls in love. And he holds it and oh, the palm, it, this hand, it's so soft, it's so beautiful. And then he looks up at the face that the palm belongs to and oh, not a jizz. So, not long after that was going to be the time in which she was choosing her husband. This is how the the princesses used to choose their, choose their husbands was they would call all of the eligible men from their kingdom, from the neighboring kingdoms, would come together and the princess would choose who she wanted to be her prince. So Nadaji decides, I've got to be the one to win this princess, princess's hand. So 
he goes to Lord Vishnu and he says, you've got to do something. Give me, give me the face, the face of Hari. Give me this, this face of God so that I can win her hand. So Lord Vishnu says, done. And Naraji's very happy. So he shows up that day and takes his place in line. And the princess, the way they did it was the princess would have a flower garland. And she would walk and she would walk through the rows and she would behold all of the men, whomever she chose, she would garland him. So Naraji's standing there in line, completely convinced that of course it must be him because he's got this incredibly divine face. So she, she walks by him and she kind of snickers a little bit. And then she keeps going. And Naraji's baffled, what's happened? And so he, he goes and stands in the other line also because she must have maybe not seen. She, and whenever she passes him, she just kind of gently giggles, snickers and keeps going. Now, it was the days before people walked around with pocket mirrors, of course. So Naraji didn't know exactly what he looked like, but he knew that Lord Vishnu had given him this divine face. So finally, after she chooses someone else, Naraji is he's very confused. And he goes out and he looks at his reflection in a lake. And actually, Vishnuji has given him the face of a monkey. Now you can imagine how irate he must be, right? So he runs after, runs after Lord Vishnu. He's furious. How could you do this? And Vishnuji explains to him, look, this is not what your life was supposed to be for. You are the one who's going to give us the Bhakti Sutras. You are the one who is this great sage. Your life is not meant to be wrapped up just with this beautiful princess. And I share that story because we're going back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Naraji was a wandering sage. He didn't have much to renounce, but nonetheless, he needed God to step in. I'll tell you a personal story. There was a time in my life, post coming to India, post being here, post living all of this incredibly divine life, in which I found myself very similar probably to Naraji in that case, just very kind of enamored of, intoxicated by, you could say. In, in America, we would say, I had a crush on. A gentleman. And I went to Puja Swamiji, right? I mean, this was sort of a spiritual type of crisis. And I went to him. But I went, A, with this, here's what's going on, but B, with the giggles of a 20-something-year-old woman intoxicated by a handsome man. And I couldn't even actually get the words out to Puja Swamiji, but he understood. 
I told him who it was about, and he first he doesn't even he doesn't look much. He's just writing something. Finally, there's this silence, and he looks up at me, and I must have been all kinds of shades of pink and purple and red and <laughs> whatnot, and. And he looks at me and he says, oh God. And, and this was when he tells me this story of Naraji. Okay, that was how I learned this story. And at the end of the story, he says, someday, you understand. And I looked at him and he says, either you figure this thing out or I'm going to have to give you a monkey face. <laughs> So here we have thousands of year gap, completely different situations, but the same situation. And the same solution to the same situation, same answer to the same situation. So renunciation in this age, renunciation in any age, is about a decision that my life is for God. Doesn't mean that you don't notice the things of the world, but it means that you realize this is not for me. My life is meant for something else. And so in the last part of the question, who is it for, you know, who is eligible? Well, anyone for whom they know deep inside that the things of the world, whether as superficial as actual possessions and sensory pleasures, or as deep as the relationships that we have in a family, that that's not the path for me. Not that it's not the path for others, not that there's anything wrong with that path, but simply the awareness, that's not my path. My path is a single-pointed focus to God. Single-pointed attention, single-pointed focus. What I want more than I want to own anything, more than any relationship that I want, more than any pleasure that I want, is to be connected to God, is to have that enlightenment, awakening, connection with me all the time. And to be able to use 100% of my time and energy for God, in service to God, in service to humanity. That, that that's what I want more than I want anything else. Not that I can't see that this looks pretty or that tastes good or that feels good or oh, that would be nice. Not that we somehow lose our senses or lose our sight, but that we realize this isn't the path that I want. This isn't the path for me. This isn't my darm. And so everyone is eligible for it. It just requires a level of awareness and commitment. But now here's, here's what's important also. And this is true whether we're looking at a life of actual full renunciation or just a life 
of spirituality. A lot of us think, first I will become pure. First I will deal with all of this other baggage that I have. I'll deal with my desires. I'll deal with my anger. I'll become free of all that. And then I will be worthy of walking a spiritual path. Then I will be worthy of renouncing. And that actually isn't true. Spirituality is, it's the doorway. It's the pathway through the doorway. It's the garden you reach as you walk the path through the doorway. It's the soil, the seeds, the flowers, the fruit, the experience of being in the garden that you've walked through the doorway on the path. It's not something that you have to have it all figured out first and then you're eligible to be spiritual. Puja Swamiji always says, God never opens your old files. And it's an incredible teaching for those of us who walked onto a spiritual path feeling anything other than the purest, the most perfect, the best ones, the deserving ones, the righteous ones. Because there's this sense of guilt of, oh wait, I've still got anger. I've still got desires. I've still got fears. I've still got complexes. I'm not quite done with the stuff that happened to me in the first 10 years of my life. You know, that's still kind of impacting me in different ways. And a lot of us think, well, first I've got to deal with all that. Then I can go to God. Then I will be worthy of going to God. And this, this awareness that weighed, God knows all that. God's not saying to you, figure yourself out first and then come to me. God doesn't have any prerequisites. Grace doesn't have any prerequisites. There's no checklist you need to tick off before you're eligible for grace. Anger, done. Desires, done. Greed, done. Confusion, done. History, done. There's no checklist. There's no prerequisites. The only thing required to walk a spiritual life, the only thing required for God, for grace, is the heart that says, this is what I want. And that is true whether you are inclined toward a full path of renunciation or just inclined to being on a spiritual path in whatever lifestyle you're living. Either way, start, start with your spiritual practice right now. Know that God accepts you right now. Now, obviously for renunciation, you want to at least be sure. You want to at least be clear enough that it's not sort of the whim of the moment. It's also not an escape. It's not, oh, well, I'm fed up with my life, therefore I will renounce. It's a walking toward, not a walking away from.
But there's no prerequisite of who you have to be to be good enough for God other than fully surrendered and fully ready to take that step. Fully ready to be one with God. And again, this is true regardless of whether it's full renunciation or just I really need to become spiritual. Going to keep my job, going to keep the family, going to keep the house where I live, but I really need to be spiritual. Either way, and anywhere in between. You are already good enough. And grace will take care of the rest. That's what I've learned. It's not about finish it up first and then you're good enough for grace. It's surrender to grace and then grace actually, gracefully, takes care of it. But when you talk about renunciation, it's not just a letter of the law, it's a spirit of the law. And so when we speak about renouncing, for example, it's not just a renunciation of attachment that, okay, I will actually give away my things, but then I'm going to sit here and think about them. Okay, I will become celibate, but then I'm going to sit here and just have sex in my mind. That's, that's not renunciation. The path of renunciation is a path of it from your life and from your mind. Now again, that doesn't mean that we're not human. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. I've shared the example of when thoughts came to me. Thoughts come. But rather than take that thought and say, oh, that sounds like fun. I guess it's not really breaking my vow if I just do it in my mind. Okay, cello, let's have fun. Instead of that, it's an awareness of weight. That thought is actually detracting me from the path that I'm on. Doesn't make me bad, doesn't make me wrong, doesn't make me dirty. But it means that I need to be aware of that and therefore deal with that thought in such a way that it stops detracting me. And so there's lots of practices, I won't go into them now, but there's, there's practices of training the mind, because I'll tell you something, if your mind is not trained, do not think it is easy to train your body. Do not think, oh, I'll just sit here and experience it all in my mind, but I won't do it with my body. Not so easy. Where the mind goes, eventually the body goes. This is why we are taught, watch your thoughts. So, it's, yes, of course, you could sit here and experience everything, but that isn't the point. The point, interestingly, is the opposite. How to be amidst it all and actually still renounced from it. So it's not, I won't own anything, but I'll sit here and think about them. It's, I could be walking through a shopping center. I could be walking down Fifth Avenue in New York and be unattached. So it's not, I'm going to sit here, not look at any women, but have sex in my mind. It's even
even being amidst women. I see them as soul. I see them as spirit. And if I can't do that, I see them as my sister or my mother. But ultimately, ideally, I see them as spirit. I see them as consciousness. I see them as, as God. So the real renunciation is not just I'm now going to experience everything inside. It's I can be in the world, but my mind isn't stuck. My mind is not window shopping on any level. That's the real renunciation.